I'm especially excited to be in a warm house this morning. Every now and then I get to go and share the gospel with hateful people. And um, I was in one of those settings recently. I'm not going to tell you what state this was in because it's not too far from here. But I was in, with a group of very, very, very rigid women. And I knew they were rigid when they picked me up at the airport because they just wouldn't talk. And I'm a talker. And so, you know, Lydia, I'm just trying to engage with them. You know how you do that when you go to other houses, you just try to find something to talk about. They were not having it. And so I thought maybe they're hard of hearing. I was in the back seat, so I just talked louder. And they still ignore me. We get to the church. And sometimes at women's conferences, we have what we call the fellowship time. And at this church, it took place in the fellowship hall, which should have been called the stiff and formal hateful place because nobody was fellowshipping, nobody's talking, nobody's doing anything. We were eating cake, which is always positive. We had cake and we had coffee before we went into the worship service. And I'm just kind of going from group to group, trying to find somebody, Margaret, who will talk. Nobody's talking to me. And finally, somebody introduced me to the worship leader who was also a guest at this particular conference. And I thought, okay, cool. We're both aliens and strangers here, so we can be friends. And I'm not going to tell you her real name, but um, I'll just call her Wanda. And I thought, this is so awesome because she and I don't go to this stiff house. And so I thought I can kind of connect with Wanda. And I have a habit of if I'm trying to connect with somebody, I don't know them. Sometimes I'll use levity. It doesn't always work. But I said, Wanda, I love musical worship. What y'all do is always my favorite part. Always my favorite part. I can't sing. I'm one of the few people in Nashville who can't. But that's my favorite part of worship. And so I told her that. And then in an effort to connect a little further, I teased. And I said, but Wanda, you want to watch me during the up-tempo songs because I might just break out into a worship dance. Now, y'all, I was teasing because I did not grow up like the wave. My mama's Baptist to the bone. And so my dad's Pentecostal, so I've got a little, a little bit of wiggle in me. I have no, no rhythm, but a little bit of wiggle. But the Baptist part of me is not a dancer, not at all. I dream of dancing in the dark, but I was teasing. And so I said, I might just wet, but I could tell by her expression, she thought I was being serious. You know how they look at you like, oh, that's lovely. And I thought, oh, I, I need to tell her I was just playing. And I also didn't want to be disrespectful because we have a template of dancing in scripture. So I didn't want her to think I was playing um, inappropriately. And so I thought, I've got to explain to her. I was, I was just teasing. Well, then they came in, our hostesses who were very serious, and they grabbed us and took us in opposite directions. And I thought, okay, I'll tell her later. When we have a minute, I'll explain that I was just kind of teasing about the whole, whole dancing thing. And so that night, it got more and more serious, the program. And then again, they took us in separate directions. And I thought, okay, I'll tell her tomorrow morning before the conference starts. Now, the conference was not in a sanctuary, a warm sanctuary like this with theater seats, and y'all get to bring coffee in. This was the, the pew, you know, just gleaming wooden pews from front to back. How many of y'all are under 40? We did this at, at Devoted. How many of y'all... Long wooden benches, baby. You got it. So some of us don't even know what pews are anymore. Long wooden benches, front to back, stained glass window. And then at the very front, they had two baby pews diagonally opposed, probably about that big for like one chunky chick or a skinny one with a Bible. And so when they brought us in, they put me on one pew by myself, her on the other pew. So there's a little distance between us, but I thought I've got to explain to her about the whole dancing thing I said last night because we're about to start. And so I lean over to say something, and right then, the master of ceremonies, and she was so serious, she wore hose, she kind of 
broke us up and told Wanda it was time to start worship. And so Wanda kind of smiles at me and goes up and they, they had an old upright piano just like this. They didn't have the keyboard. Their piano was older. Wanda walks up and she plays one hymn and I don't know, half of them sang, but not with a lot of enthusiasm. She plays one hymn. Then she stops and she goes just like this, ladies, I have got such a treat for you this morning. And then she picks off this package that I hadn't seen up until that point. It was this long package wrapped in white plastic. I'll never forget it. I've gone to therapy over it. She unwraps this package and unfurls a giant, like four foot by six foot purple flag with the Alpha and Omega on the flag in gold glitter. And she comes all the way off the platform, comes down to me, Lydia, and she goes and gives me the flag and then she goes just like this and walks back up on the stage like we had planned this and I was like oh, oh. she goes up the piano starts playing this really up-tempo song and looks at me and goes I, again like we've planned a routine and I'm holding this giant flag the women are horrified like no one's speaking I'm holding the flag and I thought I don't know what to do with this but she's my only friend. And I thought, I'm nothing if not loyal, you know? And so I, I thought, well, the only thing I really know to do is just to start to twirl it. And it was heavy. And so I kind of had to get a little stand, start twirling the flag. And women at this point are just traumatized. And then I thought, you know, they're not going to invite me back anyway. I already know that. And I'd watched some really beautiful routines at Joyce Meyer Conference. And I thought, it's probably going to be my last pub, public dance with a flag. So I went over to the edge. Of the, and again, nobody's even singing. They're just all watching me. It's like this, you know, watching a train wreck. You just can't look away. And so I kind of get ready. And I run across the front of the church. And I just went and did a grangete with the flag. And what was such a trip. I know that hurt me somewhere. <laughs> 63, I need to not jump anymore, Sharon, but, but when I landed, there was a collective gasp in church. It says, oh, and I sensed, now y'all, I didn't hear this, I didn't hear this, but I sensed God chuckle. I thought I can just totally picture God leaning over from glory going, Jesus, you've got to see what she's doing this morning, aren't you grateful that our behavior does not calibrate God's love for us? Aren't you grateful it's not up to us? Aren't you grateful that he loves, as a matter of fact, he seems predisposed to love, messy and mistake-prone people, old flag dancers. He loves us all. He's such a good God. He's such a kind God. I think we need to be re-gospeled to his mercy. As we're approaching Easter, we need to remember that he stretched out his arms for all of us, not just the well-behaved. I'm not trying to say sin is no big deal. Sin is a huge deal. Sin separates us from the holiness of God. If sin was no big deal, Jesus could have just done detention. Sin is a huge deal. Sin put him on the cross. But his grace is greater still. His grace is greater still. His mercy is greater still. His love is greater still. If you brought your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 22. Told Pastor Steve that 
we were going to talk about Easter as y'all are cruising into that season. And if you're one of those Enneagram ones who likes titles, I never title when I'm teaching on or I forget it. Um, but I did title this morning. It's a tale of two rooms, a tale of two rooms. This is Luke chapter 22, verse seven. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Pete and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Then said to, they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? In Greek, that's kataluma. The guest room, sometimes it's referred to as guest room, sometimes it's referred to as upper room in the Gospels, and it's basically an ancient Airbnb. They didn't have enough hotels in, in most of the cities in the ancient Near East during the first century, and so what people would do then and what some people do now is they'd have an annex on their house and they would rent that room out for all of the high holy Jewish festivals because they could make money when all the Jews came in from the diaspora, which is a fancy $50 seminary word that means Jews that did not live in Jerusalem. So they've come in from all over for these big festivals. It would be like Mardi Gras or, or the World Cup or the annual shoe sale at Nordstrom. People would come in from all over for these festivals and they would rent out these catalumas, these guest rooms. So Jesus says, I want you to find a cataluma, a guest room where we will eat Passover. And he said, this fellow will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. Verse 12, 13, and they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table. We talked about this on Thursday night at Devoted, on actually Friday morning at Devoted, actually at Friday night. Boy, it's been a long weekend. Um, that matter. We talked about it at Devoted. Tables in uh, Semitic culture in the first century were not like our dinner tables. They were very, very low. And when they ate at table, they would recline on cushions. So all that is prepared with the Passover meal. Jesus and the, and the disciples come and they gather around this very low table on cushions. And Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me." You'll hear many pastors and spiritual leaders refer to this passage in Luke before we break bread together, before we celebrate the sacraments of communion. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. He's talking about Judas. For the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Now, y'all remember what Passover was. This isn't just something Jesus and the disciples celebrated. Do you remember what Passover is in Jewish culture? Y'all can talk back. I'm not your pastor. Y'all remember what it was? 
Exactly. They're celebrating the fact that when they were captives in Egypt on their first time out, because they were stinkers just like us, very mistake prone, prone to wander. They were in captivity in Egypt and God sent the angel of death. And as long as they had done what God told them to do and marked their doorpost, the angel would pass over the Jewish homes. So every year, even now, I've been to Jerusalem five or six times. I'll be there in two weeks and two days. I leave for Jerusalem Tuesday, the 21st of March. They still celebrate Passover. Passover is still one of their highest holy days. And so they're celebrating that. They're celebrating God's protection of his people. So it's, it's a sober, sober meal, but it's also very celebratory. They're saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, God. Jesus is trying to explain to them, y'all, I'm actually the real blood of the symbolic blood your great-great-grandmamas and granddaddies put on their doorpost. My blood is what will keep you from experiencing death. Because a day is coming that I'm going to lay down my life for you. He's prophesying about his own death. And they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. I've been with him for three years. And they didn't just hang out once a week at church. They're with him 24-7 for three years, and they totally miss it. And they begin to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which was going to be regarded as the greatest. Verse 24. So Jesus is prophesying about Easter, and they're hurling Olive Garden breadsticks at each other. <laughs> I mean, they're just yahoos. Have you ever recognized your own inner Yehu? Been walking for Jesus with a long, walking with Jesus for a long time, and you think, "Why in the world did I do that?" I had a woman in Missy's school. My daughter. I got to become a mom through the miracle of adoption, and my daughter's from Haiti. And a woman at her school, thinking she was connecting with me, said, "You know, one of my cousins has adopted a black child too." And I felt myself kind of rise up and I thought, I so badly want to punch her in the face. <laughs> I just, whoa. I, just, I was like, you yahoo. And then what I said with just the slightest bit of sarcasm is maybe you should give her a medal. <laughs> and I thought, Lisa, Lisa, that is not what Sharon Kelly would do. <laughs> I should have been kind, I should, but sometimes my inner bread thrower just comes out and I forget I'm a new creature. They act like absolute idiots at the Passover. Jesus is saying, y'all, I'm going to lay down my life for you. I love you so much. I'm the king of all kings. And they are consumed with who's going to have more followers on Twitter. It's stunning how they miss the gospel flesh and blood, blood right in front of them. Head over to the book of Acts, just probably about a quarter of an inch, unless you have a study Bible, and then it might be an inch and a half. Acts chapter one. This, this encounter in Acts chapter one happens exactly 50 days after the train wreck of that last supper. The paintings do not depict it accurately. I've been to the Louvre in Paris. I've seen the original of the Passover of the last supper is, is conjecture. They were not sitting passively like godly men. They're, they're hurling breadsticks at each other. They're fussing. It's chaotic. 
It's pretty in a painting. It wasn't very pretty in real life. A month and a half passes, and they're back in Jerusalem, and they're back in another Cataluna. Cataluna, they're back in another upper room or guest room. As a matter of fact, most scholars think that possibly the room they celebrated Pentecost in is the very same room that they celebrated Passover in. Only 50 days have passed. Why do we know only 50 days have passed? Don't talk back. Because penta is the word five. And in the Jewish calendar, it's exactly 50 days from Passover to Pentecost. Pentecost is another high holy day. It's another big deal. People come from all over to celebrate. They've gotten another upper room. And the temperature of this upper room is totally different. Then they return to Jerusalem, verse 12 of Acts chapter 1. From the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath or Shabbat's day's journey away. Do you remember what preceded this? Jesus has stood on a hill outside Jerusalem and it's transfigured Jesus. It's the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus has said, I'm going to be with the Father now. He had passed away a month and a half before, and then he was resurrected. And he's so kind, and he knows what yahoos we are, that he knew some of us would actually need to encounter his resurrected body. That's why he has a fish fillet with Peter. You remember Peter? Remember Peter had thrown him under the bus? At the 11th hour, I don't know who he is, and threw in expletives when they were trying to accuse him of being a disciple. No, 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 I've never seen him before, never seen him before. Remember that? And just a week after the betrayal, do you remember Pete goes fishing? It says he didn't understand what had happened. He goes fishing. All the disciples went with him, except Jesus. We've lost Judas at this point. Which, man, there is a sermon series in that. Instead of saying, you are a big fat yahoo, you messed up, you need to leave the church for a year and go get in a 12-step program. And then when you come back, you'll be on probation. And then maybe just maybe we'll vote and let you come back into the fellowship. It's not what they say. They don't, they don't affirm his sin, but they say, we have your back. We'll walk with you into restoration. They go fishing with him. They fish all night. They catch nothing. It's an exact parallel of Peter's first experience with the Christ. That's in Luke 5, where he says, Jesus, we're not gonna catch fish in the middle of the day. And you remember they caught so many fish, the nets begin to break. And you remember Pete in that moment recognized, oh my heavens, Andrew was right. Remember Andrew had told Pete that Jesus was the Christ. And he told his little brother, you're a yahoo. You watch too much QVC, there's no way. I mean, this guy's from Nazareth. They don't have a Starbucks in Nazareth. It's a dinky town. How would we get a guy named Jesus from Nazareth to be our Messiah? He doesn't believe Andrew. And then he knows there's no stinking way other than that the Lord of the fish in the sea would cause tilapia to catapult themselves into the net in the heat of the day. That didn't happen. They stand down at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. And he realized, oh my goodness, this, this is the Christ. And he gets down on his face in the boat and he says, don't look at me, Jesus, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, oh, Pete, get up. I'm not mad at you, I just want you to change your Facebook status. You're gonna go from being a fisherman to a fisher of men. Sometimes people have cows at how much liberty I take with scripture and telling stories about scripture. It is a story. 
80% of the Bible is narrative. It is not a rule book. It's not a tool to club people over the head with. This really happened. And sometimes we get distant from the miracles because we treat this as a book of fables or a book of rules. It's supernatural, it's true. And at its core, it's a love story. It's a love story. So right after he betrays the Christ, Pete is back out on the exact same body of water. In the Gospels, it's called the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, and Lake Gennesaret. Again, I'll be there in two weeks. It's not, it's not like y'all's coast. It's not salt water. It's an inland lake, about nine miles long, seven miles wide. Steve and Sharon, were you surprised, Sharon, the first time you went at how small it was? Didn't you expect it to be, and how dinky the Jordan is? I mean, I thought the Jordan would be huge, at least like behind your house. You think it's gonna be impressive. And I mean, just pretty, you know, pretty water. And it's not. God uses what is natural. He doesn't make it so ethereal and so elite that we can't connect with it. He's so kind. He condescends even to give us metaphor and story that we can connect with. Pete goes out on that lake. The disciples go with him. They throw their nets out in the middle of the night because they're catching, trying to catch tilapia. You catch that at night with cast nets. You light lanterns around your boat. They catch nothing. The yetis are empty. The sun comes up. They notice a guy on the shore. And the guy on the shore calls to them, y'all caught anything last night? And they go, no. We had a great time though. One of us is a yahoo. And he totally threw Jesus under the bus, but we've been loving on him. We've been playing spoons, a little bit of rook, been sharing stories. He's reconciled. We had Mountain Dew and Slim Jims. We haven't caught any fish, but it's been awesome. Tiniest bit of liberty with a Greek, but that's pretty close. And the stranger calls back, how about throwing your nets to the right side? I bet you'll catch some. Again, completely countercultural, unlikely. You do not catch tilapia when the sun is up. And they throw their nets to the right. And guess what? So many fish catapult themselves into the net that the boat begins to sink. And in that moment, sweet Pete, who is my favorite of the disciples because he's such a nutter, he's just so quick to forget. Again, I'm not qualifying sin. I'm just so grateful for grace because I am a P-dad. I've been walking with Jesus for 55 years. I'll be 60 this summer. I can now look back over my life and I can tell you hundreds of pits that I dug myself, that our God has reached down into and rescued me from and carried me over his shoulder to a new place. He's a good God. He's such a good God. And in that moment, Pete goes, this feels kind of like deja vu to me. I've been here before three years ago. In that moment, he recognizes, oh, it's the Christ. It's Jesus. I threw him under the bus and then they put him on a cross. Legends say he watched from a distance his best friend murdered. And now you're here. Now human logic would say that in that moment, Peter 
would have gone to the back of the boat, jumped out, and swam to a distant shore so he could clean himself up as the great Benedict Arnold before he presented himself again to the Messiah, but he doesn't. He jumps out of the boat and swims directly toward Jesus because he knows that as culpable as he is, he'll find mercy at the feet of the Messiah. And he gets to Jesus, and do you remember what Jesus did? They share a fish sandwich. So simple and so profound because Jesus knows that Pete will struggle with whether or not he's a ghost or actually the resurrected body of his best friend. So he swallows, he eats and swallows. And then they have a conversation. And you remember this conversation. It's one of the more familiar in the gospels Pete, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Pete, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Pete, do you love me? And John tells us at this point, Pete is sad that Jesus is asking him the question a third time. Why have y'all heard Jesus poses that same question to him three times? So what we've heard pretty much our whole life, that Jesus is counteracting the fact that Peter denied him vehemently and vulgarly three times. That, that can be kind of a, a, a loose takeaway. It's not the best takeaway. The best takeaway is when you know the words Jesus was really using with that broken uh, disciple. There's three different words in the original language that John was written in the gospel, most of the New Testament. Three different words for our English word love. There's eros, which is the word we get erotica from. I'm 59 and single. I never experienced that element of love. There's, um, there is the word we get platonic from, phileo. And it's just a brotherly kind of love, the kind of love you have for your friends on Facebook. And then there's agapeo. And agapeo is where you love somebody more than you even knew you had the capacity to love them. When they put Missy in my arms in 2012, a couple of months after her first mama Marie died, and I had just stepped off a bus into her village in rural Haiti, and they put this very, very sick 17-year-old baby girl in my arms, I looked down at her and I thought, stick a fork in me, I'm done. I felt like the whole trajectory of my life had led to becoming her second mama. I, thought, I didn't know I could love like this. I felt like the topography of my heart changed. I felt like my ribs were gonna break. I didn't know my heart could swell to that, to that level. Agapeo, to love somebody more than you love yourself. Jesus says, Pete, do you agapeo me? Peter says, Lord, you, you know I phileo you. I love you like a brother. On my best day, Jesus, the best I've got is phileo. Second time, Simon, son of John, Pete, do you agapeo me? Do you love me more than anything? At this point in my imagination, this is not in scripture, it's my imagination. I imagine Pete just looking down at the sand. He knows his own failure. It happened a week before. The shame and the guilt, I can imagine at that point, are so heavy. Lord, you know me. You know I phileo you. 
my guess, my guess is that Pete can't meet his eyes. The third question. And I like to imagine, don't worry about the babies. I became a mom at 50. I love the sound of children in church. Um, I imagine Jesus reaching his hands that still have the scars in the wrist out to the side of that gruff fisherman's face and just tilting his countenance toward him so Pete can see his Savior's eyes. And there's no recrimination. There's no disappointment. There's no anger in Jesus' countenance. He says, Pete, do you phileo me? He lowers the love bar for that mistake-prone disciple, in effect saying, Peter, I'm not kicking you off the team. I'm actually gonna name you team captain. I know you think your shoulders are frail, but you get the fact that you need me. And it's your gratitude that I'm gonna build the New Testament church on. You will never, ever believe the lie that it's all up to you. Your own testimony just proclaims the fact that it's all about me. Jesus has just ascended into heaven. After that encounter, after several other encounters where he revealed himself to people, he has just ascended. Luke is the only one who tells us he went up. As a matter of fact, some scholars think heaven might be sideways. Luke is the only one who gives us the direction of the ascension that he went up. Then they returned to Jerusalem 50 days after Passover from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these were with one Accord, that is homo thumos. Homo means same. Thumos is emotion. They were of one accord. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. A month and a half. And they've gone from chaos and discord to devotion and prayer. A month and a half. What happened to go from chaos to this kind of unity? What happened? The cross. The cross happened. The cognizance that on my worst day, he willingly walked up to a place called Golgotha and said, they're worth it to me. They are so worth it to me. In 1903, there was a young woman who lived in Wales who probably had an accent almost as beautiful as your pastor's. Her name was Flory Evans. And by all accounts, she was a very, very shy young woman, not an extrovert, very much an introvert, never spoke out much. She walked into an Anglican church service, again, not a real wiggly kind of a church. And they begin the service And early into that service, Flory Evans was so overwhelmed by the kindness of King Jesus, she stood up in the middle of this formal church service and she bellowed as loud as she could, I love the Lord Jesus with all my heart. 
what she bellowed in the middle of a pretty stiff worship service. That's, that's the equivalent of dancing with flags. <laughs> but instead of people being offended, a revival broke out. It's now called the Great Welsh Revival. 250,000 people got saved through the Great Welsh Revival in the early 1900s. And the catalyst, all historians will tell you, is this one shy young woman who was so affected, so compelled, so absolutely transformed by the love of Jesus Christ that it radically changed her life. The people who knew you before you started coming to wave, would they say you're different? The people you went to high school with and partied with, would they say you're different? The people you were in the service with, maybe stationed in Germany with, if you didn't know Jesus, then would they say you're different as a man now? You treat your wife differently. The friends who knew you in college when you really struggle with anxiety and anorexia, when they see you now, do they say, there is a different piece about you. There's a contentment about you I didn't used to see. Can you say with conviction, it's Jesus. He he has made such a difference in my life. I've gone from being divided and chaotic in my spirit, and now he's given me peace and unity with people who abused me. He's given me a heart of forgiveness toward people I thought I could only hate. I don't punch racists in the throat anymore. I pray for them. Are you different as a result of the cross? 